Welcome to The Burning Word, a podcast that invites you to return to the Word and encounter God again. Well, believe it or not, we are now on the final episode in our study of Revelation and the politics of Jesus. I don't know about you, but I feel exhausted politically right about now. It has truly been a trying season of elections in the midst of a global pandemic. And as with every election, so many unknowns seem to linger on the horizon. What will life be like under our new president? What will God be doing on the other side of the coronavirus? Yet perhaps the most important question to ask is what should we be doing? What is our political vision on this side of eternity? And what does the end of Revelation have to do with our lives in the present? This episode, we're going to talk about the incredible vision John has of the new Jerusalem and what it means for our jobs, our callings, and the kingdom of God breaking in right now all around us. So let's dive in. Well, here we are at the end of our series and at the end of the scriptures. There's nothing left after these final three chapters of Revelation 20 to 22. They are the bookend to the Bible, the conclusion to the story of the cosmos. And yet, as with any great story, they seem to contain in them only the beginning of a new story filled with wonder, restoration, and joy. But before we get to those chapters, I want to return us to where we began in this study. If you recall our first episode, I made the case that we've been coming at politics as Americans and Westerners in general all wrong. We think politics are about policies, politicians, and maybe if we're motivated enough about the way we vote and the way we post online. Yet pointing back to Aristotle, I argue that the heart of politics is really when citizens take seriously their responsibility to publicly act for the good of their polis, that's Greek for city, really for the good of the community they find themselves in. And that cities will thus fail if their citizens fail to commit to the good of the city, while other cities will, of course, flourish if only their citizens will together take responsibility for their city's good. Well, it was here at this point that I only briefly mentioned St. Augustine, yet I think now is a good time to bring him back up again. As my friends all know, I love St. Augustine. He's truly one of the most fascinating figures in church history and world history. A rising star as an orator in Rome in the 300s AD, St. Augustine climbed all the way to a position in the imperial court in Milan, where he was giving speeches on behalf of the emperor. In those days, those who were skilled at oration were some of the most valued and respected professionals in the game, much like lawyers or doctors today. And so Augustine was as close to a rock star in ancient Roman culture as they came. Yet there was a profound emptiness inside Augustine that he could not shake. If I were to connect his life to our study, I'd note that the politics of Caesar, as engaging as they can be, failed him. He could not find life in the politics of Caesar, what the Greek called happiness and Aristotle called the good life. Instead, all he found was the self-interest of wealth, power, ambition, and fame. And the more he got of each of these in the earthly city, the less satisfied he felt. So radically, around the age of 30, Augustine began contemplating giving it all up so he could search for the life, the happiness, the good life that he could not find in the politics of Caesar. Yet such a radical shift was inevitably daunting. How does one give up such a prestigious title and position? 
How does one give up a life of wealth and comfort? How does one give up sex? For Augustine struggled deeply with his sexuality and believed that if he was truly to commit his life to God, he would need to be celibate. It was in this turmoil of Augustine's soul that one afternoon with his friend Olypius standing nearby, as he wept under a fig tree, Augustine heard this voice. He recalls it perhaps as a child's voice playing nearby, or perhaps as the very voice of God. And it was chanting, Tolo, Legi, take up and read. Augustine picked up the scriptures, and they opened to a passage in Romans that said, Not in revelry and drunkenness, not in sexual excess and lust, not in quarreling and jealousy, but rather put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the desires of the flesh. Augustine recalls how it was like a light turning on within him. It was like the earthly city that had been consuming his heart and mind for so many years was now shown for what it was, temporary. And the heavenly city, where he would be robed in the Lord Jesus Christ, revealed itself as his true home, the true destination to which all his earthly desires had been pointing. I share all this about Augustine because in his late life, he would write one of the most influential books on the history of the church and on politics itself that was called City of God. This was Augustine's political manifesto. Yet if you read City of God, it doesn't necessarily sound like what most political treaties sound like. Interestingly, the context of City of God was the sacking of Rome in 410 AD by the Visigoths, a Germanic people that had been growing in strength and audacity in light of the emperor moving the capital of the Roman Empire. Their attack and subsequent sack of Rome would shock the entire ancient world. Rome had not fallen to a foreign enemy in nearly 800 years. I mean, 800 years, that's a long time. And in that time, Rome had been the symbol of security, the symbol of stability to the entire ancient world, a symbol of the peace and prosperity that Caesar said was possible. Yet Rome had fallen. So Augustine boldly writes this book in which he claims it was, in fact, inevitable for Rome and really for all earthly cities to fall. I think this is a heavy word to ponder seriously today as we continue to feel the ongoing upheavals and shaking of a global world. Yet all earthly cities are built, as Augustine notes, on earthly politics. And therefore, for Augustine, it seemed obvious all earthly cities inevitably must fail. There's no earthly power in which a Christian can put their hope. It's because Christians were never meant to place their confidence in the politics of Rome or the politics of Caesar. Instead, Christians, as Augustine reminds them, were called first and foremost to be citizens of heaven. In fact, Christians are called first and foremost to be citizens of the heavenly city. Augustine argues that if you look back through scripture, you actually can see this lens of two cities. There's the city of man which is the one first built by Cain. Now, if this is new info, it's worth checking out Genesis 4:17. It's a fascinating passage in which we're told that Cain, after he kills his brother Abel, goes off and builds a city. And this city, the city of Cain, is going to be directly linked in Genesis to the city of Babel. Now, I'm sure you know the story, but Babel is the city in which those of earth seeking to make a name for themselves that would rival God sought to build a tower all the way up into the heavens. 
the Bible has a very interesting point it's making here, and it's a warning to all earthly cities that seek to make towers that stretch to the heavens, extending the name of themselves to perhaps rival God. The Bible will be clear. These cities are no match for God's heavenly glory. And just as God is going to scatter the builders of Babel, we see over and over again in the Bible, God scattering the earthly empires, such as Egypt and Canaan and Persia and Assyria, and of course, eventually, the Babylonians themselves, the inheritor of the city of Babel. Yet throughout the Bible, we have, in addition to this earthly city, the city that God so consistently scatters, we have references to a heavenly city, one that God, we are told, has been building and that God, in fact, dwells in. So take, for example, this reference in Psalm 46.4. This is what it says. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. It's interesting. Or take again Psalm 48. Now this is verses 1 to 3. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. So there's some interesting themes that are taking place here. If you were reading the Bible, you'd notice that this city of man is standing in contrast, in tension with the city of God. And for many of the Jewish people, they assumed and predicted that the city of Jerusalem was, in fact, this heavenly city. But even as I just read those Psalms over us, there's this tension that while Jerusalem does seem to be the place that God is preparing his people, where God wants to dwell, there's an even broader sense in which the city of God is, in fact, perhaps being built and prepared in heaven. In contrast to Babel, the earthly city, God is working, is building, is preparing the heavenly city, often referred to as Mount Zion. If Jerusalem is helpful because it gives us a picture of what an earthly city where God dwells would look like if we could in fact find or see this holy, heavenly city, there is an even greater sense in the Psalms that we're waiting on God to come establish this city himself. We need God and his coming Messiah, the son of David, to come establish this heavenly throne so that the city God has been building, Mount Zion, can now finally come here on earth. Okay, so coming back to Augustine. Augustine draws both these biblical themes out, the city of God and the city of man, and he does so to offer reassurance and reorientation. Do you not see, Augustine says, that the earthly city, consumed with the politics of Caesar, can only offer you earthly good that will inevitably let you down. I mean, Augustine had lived this in his own life. But if we are, in fact, citizens of the heavenly city already, residing now as foreigners and sojourners in the earthly cities we find ourselves in, then do you not see that we do not need to fear when earthly cities fail, because our citizenship is secure in heaven. We can instead, in the upheaval and turmoil of our earthly cities, seek the good of those cities by offering the gifts of our heavenly citizenship, the gifts of this coming heavenly city to the earthly cities we find ourselves in now. I think it's important to pause here. 
Because Christians have been struggling with this ever since Augustine wrote City of God. We tend to lean one direction or the other. Either we get so consumed with the politics of the earthly city. For all our intents and purposes, we don't really live as if our citizenship is with Christ in the heavenly city at all. Or we get so consumed with heaven, we sort of neglect the tangible political needs we find in our actual cities, our earthly communities, and our neighborhoods. In a way, however, this whole study has been trying to walk out. What does it look like to live as a citizen of the heavenly city while seeking the good of the earthly cities we find ourselves in? That is what the politics of Jesus are all about. The study has been trying to offer some tangible political actions we can do as the people of God publicly seeking the good of our communities. Actions like communal fasting and multicultural worship prayer protests, and prophetic lament services, and I'm sure a host of other political actions as well. In fact, one of my favorite parts about Augustine was that he got letters all the time from people across the Roman Empire trying to ask him for advice on how to live in this tension between the earthly city and the heavenly city. One of my favorites came from a Roman general and governor named Boniface, who oversaw a region near Augustine in North Africa and regularly corresponded with him. At one point in Boniface's career, Embattled, bitter, and despairing, Boniface was tempted to abandon his post, withdrawing from public responsibility and seeking to take a kind of monastic vow to live a quiet life of worship before God. Given that Augustine was a bishop and had founded a monastic community, Boniface probably expected his plan to receive an encouraging reply. Instead, however, Augustine counsels him to remain in his post as a matter of divine calling. While some might be called to the high-minded heavenly city ideals of living out a quiet life of chastity, prayer, and ceaseless devotion, Augustine notes, and now I'm quoting from his letter, Each person, as the Apostle Paul says, has his own gift from God. One this gift, another that. Hence, others fight invisible enemies by praying for you, while you struggle against visible barbarians by fighting for them. Augustine argues that to be working for the peace of the earthly city now, Boniface is in fact investing in the work of the heavenly city taking place alongside his own. The city of God is actually being built here in the present, in the very midst of the city of man. And sometimes this looks like church work, worship and preaching, evangelism and missions, but sometimes this looks like governors and doctors, lawyers and school teachers, baristas and cashiers and bus drivers, all doing their work now in the present to the glory of God, preparing through their work for the city of God to come. This is a monumental, earth-shattering idea, and we're going to need to keep unpacking it as we go through this episode. For now, this leads us to our final three chapters of Revelation, which, while often gestured at either in debate or as a future glimpse of comfort, I believe actually carries some very serious political weight in the present. So let's begin by talking about one of the most contested passages in the Bible, Revelation 20. So here's what it says in Revelation 20, 1-3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Okay, so if you don't have any awareness of this fight about the interpretation of this passage, you might be better off. 
But if you're hearing this for the first time, the intriguing part of this vision that has to stand out is that we're told Satan is bound for a thousand years. And the purpose of this is that so he might not deceive the nations any longer. But just in case we weren't confused enough about what this is referring to, the end of the passage tells us that after being bound, Satan must be released for a little while. As you could probably guess, theologians throughout the history of the church have had a field day with this one. Two basic options are that if we take the thousand years to be a literal historic amount, then this moment must be coming at some point in the future. This is certainly a possibility, but it's an option that strains in a number of diverging directions. The dragon we've noted has often been associated with signs and symbolic language before, like back in Revelation 12. We don't really know why this period of a thousand years would be necessary. Some argue that it's a period in which all the promises of Israel, such as the restoration to the land and the rebuilding of the temple, could take place, but this isn't really mentioned or even suggested in the passage we just read. It seems a little important and a little confusing to have it be so ambiguous and vague. We will be told later that when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from prison, will come to deceive the nations, Gog and Magog to gather them for battle. And then these deceiving nations surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire comes down from heaven and consumes them. This continues to be confusing chronologically. We just had Armageddon happen back in Revelation 19, where the gathering of the nations are defeated by a storm of hail. But now it's repeated again in Revelation 20, accompanied by apocalyptic signs that we heard about in Revelation 6, Revelation 11, and so on. I mean, why does it seem like the end of the world just keeps happening over and over and over in Revelation again? And what part does this thousand-year reign have to play in these repetitive end-of-the-world events? So if that's one take on the passage, the other is that the thousand years is meant to be read symbolically. As we've noted before, there are several heavily symbolic renderings of both signs and numbers that have already occurred in Revelation, such as the woman and the dragon, the number 666, as well as all the sevens that we keep seeing over and over again. So this view would argue that this thousand-year reign describes the church age we currently are in. Thus, it's another layered description of the time we currently find ourselves in that sits either on top of or at least loosely alongside the previous visions and judgments described. But truly, the hardest part of this view is that Satan is said to be bound, an impulse that doesn't pair well with other passages of Scripture, like 1 Peter 3 where Satan is said to be roaming around like a lion, seeking to devour. So that's the conundrum of this millennium reign. Are the thousand years literal, a future time in history when Satan will be bound so that something can happen? Or are the thousand year reigns simply a symbol, an unending church age in which we currently now dwell, concerned about a future when Satan, who's bound now, will be unbound in the time to come? Honestly, I wish I could help you come to some definitive resolution, but this one often stumps me. I go back and forth between the two positions. Eventually, we will all know what this passage was concretely referring to, but as with much of Revelation, I hesitate to make firm guesses right now. I take it very seriously as the Word of God and believe concretely that its promises are true and will come to pass. I just can't tell you concretely what it's going to look like. Yet, as we lean into Revelation 20, for all the controversy, 
What so often gets missed is the highly theologically significant text found in Revelation 24 to 6. So listen closely to this with me and just keep an open mind wherever you fall in the millennium debate to what this passage is really getting at for saints in the present. This is what it says. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ. They will reign with him for a thousand years. So again, you see how sticky this passage is to sort out. It seems to suggest a future time when the souls of the beheaded will come to life and reign, while the rest of the dead did not yet come to life which would seem, again, to point to a literal future 1,000-year reign. We don't currently have those whose heads were cut off currently reigning with Christ. Yet the symbolic position often notes that the symbolic language here, referring to Christians who, in their new birth, died and came to life, could be viewed as now reigning with Christ. I think that's a bit of a strain. But to me, the point isn't even to sort these tensions out. I think the point is that the saints are currently, or will, reign with Christ. John specifically mentions thrones, seated on them, were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Now, this may be old news to you, but I continue to find it astounding. Whether it is a future prediction or a symbolic prophecy of the present, saints, we are told, are raised to reign with Christ. His throne gives them authority to judge. In essence, God shares with us in his throne. God invites his image bearers, indeed those who have quite literally borne testimony for the word of God with their bodies, to now rule under but with his authority. Can you imagine, just for a second, having that kind of responsibility? If you've ever been in charge of a major party or a big event like a wedding, the decisions can be staggering. Minute details all the way up to major moments have crucial calls that need to be made and everyone is looking to you. It's honestly a lot of pressure, but it's also exhilarating. When you have a clear vision, when all your skills are in place, when you have support and resources. I used to be a supervisor for this catering company in Chicago that did large events, and sometimes it was obviously quite hard and frustrating. But other times, when the menu and floor plan were clear, when the staff were well-trained and in place, and the schedule was tight and well thought through, the event would flow, and you'd be free to make calls, fix problems, find solutions. I feel like that's what these saints are doing here. They're the ones who have been well-tested, and now are entrusted with the authority, the very throne of God. I mean, I almost can't get my mind around how significant this is. If we were to take seriously the potential that our earthly lives are part of testing and training us for our eternal responsibilities, I think it would change how I approached my job, how I approached my various skills and hobbies, how I approached my mental and emotional health, my leadership, my servitude. It is perhaps for the seriousness of its claim 
that saints will one day rule with God, that we're told at the end of Revelation 20 that we will all be judged before the throne. Here's what the passage in Revelation 20, 11 to 15 says. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were open. Then another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I'm not going to spend a ton of time here, though we could. It's a moving scene. Really, it's the great scene of judgment, the great scene of justice, a scene where the book of life and the Lamb finally enact the judgment of death on all whose name is not written. All of us, one day, will stand before this throne. I I take that so seriously. Most of the time, this can be an encouraging thought, but inevitably, it's also meant to be a sobering thought. When we stand before this throne, nothing will be hidden. Paul elsewhere is going to tell us that in this moment, all will be burned away, either burned away like chaff, as useless, or refined and enduring as if luminous gold. But John is not yet done with his finale in Revelation. So here's the following passage. It's from Revelation 21, 1-4, and it really is as spectacular a build-up and hype as one could picture from the greatest story ever told. This is what John says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out from heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. The images John has been gathering from the Old Testament now are going to fully resound and explode off the page. I mean, the whole book of Revelation has been like a greatest hit of allusions to Old Testament prophecies. But now we find that the first heaven and the first earth are going to completely pass away. We're told that with them the sea, that ancient symbol of chaos, is now no more. In their place will be a new heaven and a new earth. But even more specifically, a new holy city the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, we're told, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Such loving tenderness here. An eternal city, diligently, even painstakingly prepared. A God who now, at long last, like a husband, who's been waiting so eagerly and expectantly for this day to come, is reunited once more with his people. And in this moment, we're told, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, 
and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. This passage continues with God, or perhaps Jesus now speaking. This is verses 5 to 8. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the springs of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all who lie, their portion will be the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This really is the heart of Revelation. This has been the core vision that Jesus has repeated over and over to the churches and to all Christians who find themselves pressed by the politics of Caesar. Jesus is saying to the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes, this is the inheritance awaiting them. The new city of God, those springs of the water of life, able to be drunk without payment. Yet as ever, there is danger as well. Revelation has not pulled any punches about the very real judgment that already has and continues to pour forth. Notice particularly, the cowardly and the faithless are named first here in Jesus' warning, as those who fall away from the politics of Jesus in the midst of upheaval. I mean, this was the very real threat Christians were facing in Asia. Were they going to be cowardly? Were they going to be faithless? The point is not to gleefully condemn others to this fate, but to carefully examine our own hearts. Can I hold on to Jesus till the end, in trouble and famine and hardship and sword? Can you hold on to Jesus? I have often wondered how anyone can answer that question before they're faced with their own trial. I mean, Peter himself thought he inevitably would succeed with flying colors when he would, in fact, fail. Yet Revelation and the rest of the New Testament will also offer a kind of assurance here. The Spirit of God, the one who testifies to our spirit that we are children and heirs, this Spirit will strengthen us, sustain us, and return us whenever we fall away. Jesus' point here is not to cause us dismay, but to show us a compelling vision. In a way, all of Scripture has been building to this moment. Ever since Eden, when God dwelt with man and woman, ever since the tabernacle and the temple, when God fixed a permanent home on this earth for his glory to dwell, there have been these hints and guesses that God was preparing a place, a city, in which we would finally dwell with God. And this is what John is describing to us. Allow yourself to be swept into these moving images that are going to pour forth. This is now Revelation 21, 9 to 14. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. 
It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So John just keeps this description flowing. Jewels adorn the gates. Streets are paved with gold. The jasper that was mentioned earlier in Revelation 4 that depicted God's throne is now having this crystal clarity throughout the city in which God's glory is shining through. In the ancient world, it was common for wealthy patrons who gave funds to help build the city walls to have their names inscribed on the foundations of the city. Here it is the twelve apostle whose legacy this city is built upon. It was also common for all the resources of your kingdom or the kingdoms that you'd conquered to be gathered up and put on display. As John describes these abundance of jewels, these streets paved with gold, were taken all the way back to the very early descriptions of the Garden of Eden. We're even reminded of these 12 stones that if you go back in the Old Testament, the high priest was to wear on their chest. Perhaps you've seen pictures of this breastplate depicted before in Sunday school or Jewish scenes. The point is that all the wonders and beauty of creation, over which God rules entirely, are now gathered here in his glorious city and put on display as only the greatest king of all kings could possibly do. So John's going to continue now in verse 22 to 27. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city did not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. As with all of Revelation, there's so much going on here. All of the Old Testament has come to a crescendo, but this particular description has an interesting clash with an earlier prophecy of Ezekiel. You see, Ezekiel spent several long chapters depicting how there would be this new temple that God would build in Jerusalem. Quite a lot of detail goes into these visions from Ezekiel, and many a commentator has therefore been puzzled at what seems to be a blatant contradiction from John here of a major prophet like Ezekiel, no less. I remember this even confusing me in courses on the Bible when I was a college student, and a professor who my wife asked about the question couldn't really give either of us a clear answer. I think he said something like, this one is truly a mystery when it comes to the tensions in the Bible. But as I've been sitting with this text, I'm not sure John's point is to contradict Ezekiel so much as to confirm him. John doesn't see a temple because the whole city has become the temple. That's actually the point. God's presence is everywhere. There is no longer confinement. Space is set apart as holy. Some space is designated as sacred where God might be worshipped. Now, everywhere is sacred. Everywhere is holy. Everything is worship. If you look back a couple of verses we skipped, the city is described in these enormous cube-like proportions where the walls are going to stretch 1,500 miles into the sky. 
I mean, this is almost absurd. You can't wrap your mind around the dimensions John is giving us of the New Jerusalem until you realize that this cube-like proportionality is actually meant to evoke the dimensions of the tabernacle, that place where the glory of God dwelled in the Old Testament. Except now, the whole city has become the tabernacle, and its perfect cube-like proportionality signals its completeness. Where else could an entire city contain the glory of God dwelling with his people? As a result, the city is always shining. There is no darkness in the New Jerusalem. Most ancient cities would have been poorly lit and thus sometimes dangerous at night, but not here where God's presence is dwelling. The city is always shining. There is only light. It's no longer that harsh light of exposure and heat, but it's the beautiful light of revelation, where everything is revealed as it is and stands unashamed before God. In addition to light, the city gates are said to be flung open. Isaiah, Joel, and the Psalms had prophetically pondered the day when the nations would stream into Jerusalem. And John's point is that now, with no danger and no threat, the gates are forever flung wide, receiving all who would enter. Yet, one of my favorite lines is still to come. This is going to be Revelation 22, verses 1 to 3. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. I mean, come on, the poeticism here is unreal. Yet there's actually another deep ode to Ezekiel. There was always this sense in scripture of the importance of water for life. Eden is described as being found between four rivers. The prophets foretold that in the future Zion, there'd be a river flowing from the city, a vital necessity for provision and self-sufficiency if a city ever came under siege. Yet Jesus himself would of course take hold of this promise and declare, I am the living waters. Anyone who is thirsty, come unto me and drink. Now, beside these very waters, these living waters, there is a tree, the tree of life. In Jewish thought, access to the tree of life always needed to be restored. This is what was lost in the Garden of Eden. We lost access to our life. We lost access to the ancient mythical fruit that could endlessly sustain us. Yet John indicates that the one tree, the tree of life in Jesus Christ, has now in fact been restored to us. Its fruit, the number 12 for 12 months, for 12 apostles, for 12 tribes, is endlessly available to us. And the leaves, the leaves of this tree, rather than wither, as all leaves do, will be leaves that offer healing and restoration for the nations. Can you even imagine what that healing could look like? I think right now of our ravaged world. Riddled not only with the global pandemic, but with poverty, hunger, abuse, and disease. Think of all the wars that have been fought, family and friends brutally murdered, domestic abuse, sexual abuse, violent words spoken, deep scars left on the psyches of those who never had enough, the many suicides of despair from those who couldn't endure the ongoing burden of living. And I think of those leaves what it will mean for those leaves of healing to be pressed up against the wounds, 
that you and I never even knew existed. What those leaves will mean for you and for me. It's almost like the deep ache that comes from a burn. Maybe if you've ever been sunburned, or especially if you've ever had a real burn, a terrible burn that melts your skin. I think in the midst of all that agony and pain of that moment, when you cover a burn with the soothing balm of aloe, when that oozing release of that aloe leaf cools your skin and allows healing to begin to take place. Oh, to receive the healing of those leaves. Oh, to receive the unending fruit of that tree of life that can be found in Jesus. This vision is so powerful. John is going to follow it with this incredible statement. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. No longer will anything be accursed. I mean, can you imagine? Sin and death will no longer touch this city. The throne will be occupied by God and the Lamb, and the servants of God will worship. But did you catch it? That final verse, this promise that shows up again and again and again. We're told, they will reign forever and ever with him. I just can't get over this. I keep coming back to it. I keep sensing that we don't live fully enough into this. That we don't take this promise seriously enough. That we don't consider what it means that we will all dwell with God in a city in which we reign with him. This is where the politics of Jesus comes together. From that initial call in our first episode that we should be royal priests. I firmly believe that as I've been pondering this promise long and hard, I believe that our earthly jobs, our work and gifting and skills that we are using and developing here in the present, those vocations are being used by God to prepare us for the work we will be doing when we reign with him in the heavenly city to come. Now, I realize this is a little disruptive for some of us, Some of us actually really dislike our jobs. That's why we resist this idea that somehow there's going to be work or callings or skills that need to be used in heaven. Some of us are comforted by the thought that one day we will be able to escape all of these daily constraints. Daily constraints like clocking in and clocking out, responding to emails, dealing with supervisors we don't like, having to meet deadlines and quotas and agendas. However, I fear that when we look forward to that escape from daily constraints and imagine instead some sort of eternal bliss where we sway together in worship, I can't help but think that that sounds more like our current American vision of retirement than it does of a heavenly vision in an eternal city where we will be required to reign and serve with God even as we worship. Now, the good news is that the reason why we so often dislike our jobs in the present are that they continue to be tainted by sin and death and toil. They often require back-breaking labor filled with the weed and thistles of a ground that God has cursed or with that pained labor that always seems to accompany any creative new birth. But imagine the city in which your vocations, those gifts and skills and passions, 
that quite uniquely have been formed in you. Imagine what that work would look like in the eternal city. Bakers who find delight in the ongoing joy of their craft. Teachers who find delight in the ongoing instruction of their pupils. Scientists who find delight in the ongoing observation of the new creation we all inhabit. Now, of course, some jobs as we know them will cease. And who knows if jobs is how we will even consider the work that we do in heaven. I have a hard time thinking employment will be anything like a system we currently occupy. But work, all of us will have work. And it will be redemption and extension of the work we have done in the present, offered now in new ways to serve God and each other in the city we share. I realize all of this is a little hard to imagine. And it doesn't help that Revelation is not giving us a ton of details here. Revelation isn't offered as a field manual of what our work will look like in heaven. Rather, the point is far closer to home. The work we do now is preparation for the work we will do one day when we reign with Christ. It's that profound. Your work, your job, your calling, your role as a mother, a father, a brother, a sister, a roommate, your passion, your giftings, your skills, they all eternally matter. How you invest your life in the present matters to God. Jesus was actually so clear about this. Each of us has been given talents. Some of us have been given more and some of us have been given less. All of our talents are different, but we're called to invest whatever talent we're given. We're called to see these talents grow, to prepare with our talents for when our king will return, and then to offer our king whatever it is that we've seen grow in his absence. The worst thing we can do, we are told, as one entrusted with talents, is to simply bury them in the ground and hope that when our king returns, he will be happy we kept his talent safe. So practically, the politics of Jesus, I think, looks like us using our talents to invest in the renewal of the earthly cities we find ourselves in. I outline this in the digital study a bit more. It's a big thought with lots of potential applications. Some of us might realize the work we do in the present really is our preparation for the work to come. Others of us might see that the way we offer our skills outside of work by serving our church, by serving our community, by creating art or advocating for justice or creating new business ventures that are ethically sourced. All of those ideas are projects of renewal in how we invest our talents here on earth. For some of us, it is seeing that in this season, perhaps it is our children, or perhaps it's our friendships, or perhaps it is evangelism or discipleship that is our investment. Yes and amen. But all of us have political work to do. All of us are called to participate in some project of renewal, whether they be great or small, whether they look like starting a nonprofit to meet a current communal need, or starting a business to offer employment to others, or simply picking up our neighborhood kids from school every day to make sure they have someone to take them home safely. All of this earthly work, all of this political work in the present, is preparation for the reign with Christ we will do in the city to come. There's this story, a vocation story, actually a redemption story, that I think brings together 
the possibility of what Revelation has been trying to tell us. So the story, which is a short story, is called Leaf by Niggle, and it was written by J.R.R. Tolkien. In it, we meet Niggle, who was, we're told, a painter. And we're told that his contribution to the world, quite simply, was to paint. It was his incredible gift and passion. Niggle, as a painter, was particularly captivated by this vision he had of a tree. A beautiful, stunning tree, swaying gently in the wind, leaves glistening in the countryside sun, covering and shading, we're told, all who pass underneath. Niggle loved the vision of this tree. It was so real to him he could practically see it. And so Niggle said to himself, I must capture this tree to share it with others. So Niggle set out to paint a life-sized, massive mural of this tree. But Niggle had a problem. While Niggle sketched the outline to his vision on the mural wall, much as his name suggested, he struggled with niggling, fixated on the details, trying to capture the perfected life-likeness of this tree. So rather than getting to the sweeping countryside and expansive branches, Niggle found himself continually referring to just one leaf. It was this beautiful leaf, to be sure, painted in vivid and crisp detail. But as Niggle's days steadily passed, he never really moved on and was only ever able to capture that one perfect leaf. So, we're told, Niggle went on a journey, by which, of course, Tolkien meant his death. And in the aftermath of Niggle's life, his mural slowly decayed over time, and the outline he had painted faded. Eventually, all that was left was his single leaf. The townspeople set it up as an exhibit. Leaf by Niggle, they called it. And occasionally, the people in Niggle's town would come by to visit, and as they looked upon this beautiful, exquisite leaf, and all the decay surrounding it, many people remarked what a waste it had been, with all of Nagel's life and passion and skills, how he had only left behind his single leaf. However, when Nagel went on the journey of his death, he found himself traveling into the mountains of the heavenly country. And as he's passing by these outskirts of the mountains, something catches Nagel's eye. Quickly, he runs over to it, there before him stood the tree, but his tree finished, its leaves opening, its branches growing and bending in the wind that Niggle had so often felt or guessed and yet had so often failed to capture. As he gazed at this tree and its stunning beauty, Niggle slowly lifts his arms, opens them wide to the tree, and says, It is a gift. The world before death, his old country, the earthly city, had forgotten Niggle almost completely. And there his work had ended, unfinished and helpful only to a few. But in his new country, the permanently real world, he finds that his tree is in full and finished detail that it was not just a fancy or whim of his that had died with him. No, it was indeed part of the true reality that would live and be enjoyed forever in the eternal city. 
You and I are only given this one life, and sometimes it is painfully hard and frustrating, and sometimes we get distracted, we niggle, we grow old, and the work, whether brilliant or quite ordinary and mundane, eventually begins to fade. But our work is not only about this life. And for many of us, the vision we had been given, the vision that was from God, the vision for our callings and our vocations, this vision was a gift. We thought we had been working to make this vision a reality here and now, when actually it will be a part of what God is doing in the city that is to come. Quite simply, it is a gift. And these small leaves that we get to paint in the present are part of that promise, a sign to the world of the city that is to come. Leaves that are a foretaste of the leaves that one day will be for the healing of the nations. We, the people of God, the followers of Jesus, have much political work to do. Work to grow and to heal. Work to care for and sustain. Work to cultivate and build. Yet we know that our labor is not in vain. For our King will come and will establish all the work we have left undone. And we will reign with him in the city, the eternal city of glorious light. How could we possibly end such a study? A study that has peered into the mysteries of heaven and quaked at the coming judgment of God on the politics of Caesar, even as it has proclaimed joyfully the coming rule of the politics of Jesus. Well, I can think of no better way than to simply read you Jesus' own words that close out this vision. This is Revelation 22, 12-21. Behold, I am coming soon bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty, Come. Let the one who desires Take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen.
Thank you.